0: Hi, Amanda. Really excited to have you on the show. You are the founder of BackScoop, and I'm really fascinated to hear your story. For those who don't know you yet, could you share a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks so much for bringing me on. So I guess I would introduce myself as the founder and CEO of BackScoop. It's basically a daily newsletter that makes it fun and easy to stay updated with everything going on in Southeast Asian tech in minutes every morning. And that's pretty much it. Short and sweet.
0: How did you get started on this? What sparked your passion for writing and entrepreneurship and startups? Where does it all begin?
1: I think the main place it really began for me was when I started working in startups. And that was when I was actually a fresh graduate from high school. So I graduated two years ago when the pandemic just started. And I decided to take a gap year instead of going to university. And I stumbled upon a startup here in the Philippines. And mind you, in the Philippines, I don't think the startup scene was very, very advanced. It's nothing like Singapore, Indonesia, even in 2020. So for me, seeing a startup that was invested in by a foreign investor like Justin Mateen, like everybody knows what Tinder is, was really mind-blowing for me, especially from my perspective. So seeing that news, I had to check out what that whole startup was about. So I read the article, did my research, and I found out it was a coding boot camp. And at the time, I was doing a lot of soul searching because I frankly didn't know what to do over a gap year in the pandemic. So I decided to actually apply to this startup, not as an employee, but as a student, because it was a coding bootcamp. My goal was to probably create an app or probably get a software engineering job by the end of the bootcamp, so that by the time I go to college, I'd have done something meaningful already. And I think, you know, life had other plans for me. Long story short is no matter how hard I tried, (laughs) it was very, very hard to learn to code, even the most basic things. So that led me to telling the founders like, hey, I don't think I can do this. I think I should leave this whole coding bootcamp and go find something else to do. They basically told me, don't leave the course. Maybe you can help us out instead and work here. And I found out that the startup was actually just two people, just the two founders. And that led me to become the first employee. For me, it was my first time truly working at a startup. And being in the Philippine startup ecosystem, I thought, okay, I have to learn everything about startups. This is my first job. Part of my job was also selling to other startups. so I really had to find out everything about startups, not just in the Philippines, but also in like Southeast Asia and other markets because those were our customers. So as one of the main functions of my job, I had to look at setups in the West, in Southeast Asia, and basically all over the world to sort of place our engineers at jobs there. That whole process of working there for a year, doing different functions, because you know, you're the first employee, I'm not just selling to other companies. I realized a few things. So one, it's that, Looking for Southeast Asian startups was actually really, really hard. Like There was no centralized source of news for startups that had all of the news. So I would go to multiple news sites, read every article one by one, and list down all these company names and reach out to them later, trying to get them to hire our engineers. And the second thing was that the Philippine startup ecosystem was actually starting to boom, so when I joined the company, one of the big reasons that it was exciting to me, even though there were like only just the two founders, was that, frankly, the Philippine startup ecosystem was just not very developed. But after joining the company, and in the one year I was there, I saw a few things. So one, it was that the number of company partners that I was working with from the Philippines was growing. So I had this whole list on a spreadsheet of all of the Philippine startups that we were working with. And that list was just growing and growing and growing every single month. That was really, really exciting because that's pretty unheard of. And the second thing was that this sign wasn't just seen in my spreadsheet, but it was also seen in sort of the news. So the coding bootcamp startup that I worked in was was called Avian School. So I joined them in around July-ish, 2020. Then by the end of that year, they actually became the third startup in the Philippines to get accepted by Y Combinator. A few months after that, I shortly saw so many other Philippine startups get in. So for me, I was like, okay, that checks the boxes. I see that there are lots of Philippine startups that are coming out. These are very, very early stages here on my spreadsheet. And two, like the Philippine startup ecosystem is getting recognition. Well, foreign investors from the US, whether they're angel investors or really more institutional investors. So I had a few takeaways from that process. So one, it was very, very hard to keep up with Southeast Asian tech. And there was no centralized source of news you couldn't just go to one website to get it all. And the second thing was that startups and the startup ecosystem outside of Singapore and Indonesia were getting much more mature. So even the Philippines which was one of the more unheard of startup ecosystems is actually starting to get some traction. So I told myself like okay look, people are going to start looking at Southeast Asia as a startup ecosystem of its own. Like not as just part of Asia but more of getting questions like, how can I invest into Southeast Asia? What are the countries in Southeast Asia? What are the different exciting startups there? They're not just going to think of it as a part of Asia, but it could finally stand alone as one really interesting market. So I told myself that, look, there needs to be a source for everything Southeast Asian tech now. And that's sort of where I got the idea for BackScoop.
0: You know, the truth is there are startups, right, that are also providing tech, right, Uh, news in Southeast Asia. There's tech in Asia, there's E27, so even to some extent, Deal Street Asia, TechCrunch also has increasing focus on Southeast Asia as a market. So how do you think about all that? How does that match up with your point of view about what the market needs in a fresh way?
1: So what I generally shared earlier were sort of the shifts in the Southeast Asian tech scene, right? So tech in Asia, E27, Dell Street, and all of these other platforms are actually great. But I think it's because of all of the growth in Southeast Asia that makes there be a need for something different. So before, you could go to tech in Asia and pretty much get all of the news that you wanted because how many startups are actually announcing fundraisers, how many startups are actually there in the past. But now, when there's so much more growth in Southeast Asia as a whole, like how many startups from Indonesia are getting funding every week? But now you have all of these startups from the Philippines, from Vietnam, from Malaysia, and all these other countries are also announcing fundraisers and the such. So now, when you go to the Tech in Asia website, the Deal Street Asia website, or the E Twenty Seven website, you cannot just go through every article one by one; it's just too much. And the second thing is that it's actually fragmented. So you would find some articles on one platform, but you might not find the fundraiser about another company in another platform. So I think that's one way that the The platforms right now aren't really serving the market so well. So before it was totally fine. But now just because of the volume of news, it just doesn't make sense for people. It's just not convenient. So I feel like Backscope is more of a layer two or version two that is a bit better suited for the change in the landscape now, but also sort of like the change in the people now as well, because people now are at the stage where they also have to start looking at their startups and ask themselves, okay, now I come from Singapore, but I want to expand to the Philippines. What are the other startups there? What's actually happening there? Do I have a competitor there? Can I learn from a startup that's there? So now people are actually looking out to the other markets as well, beyond just Singapore and Indonesia. And for them, like, they can't just go to the websites and refresh, refresh every single day, multiple times a day. But they sort of need a more convenient way to find out what's going on in other markets. So that's better solved by a newsletter that gives you the news in like five to seven minutes a day than you manually going through all of these sites and reading articles one by one, hoping that it's something that's related to what you're doing.
0: I think you're identifying something that's a, a persona for sure, right? Which is that you're outside Southeast Asia, you're looking at Southeast Asia, and you're trying to understand Southeast Asia as a region. Does a newsletter actually solve it? Because I guess you could make the argument that if I want to understand Southeast Asia, I use Google, right? Which is the most common thing, right? Southeast Asia tech trends. And then that's an aggregated view. And then now you're saying that a newsletter provides that. But I mean, I think you're right to say that there's some curation, obviously, across articles. And I read your articles as well. Mm. But I'm just kind of curious, do you think it really solves that problem? Or do you have more on your roadmap beyond your newsletter that would actually solve this set of requirements?
1: So our main market's actually people in Southeast Asia. That's the bulk of our subscribers. And there are more people like you and me. You're based in Singapore. I'm based in the Philippines. But let's say I go to a website and read a news article every day about Southeast Asian tech. It's not sort of guaranteed that the effort that I will spend going to the website and looking for articles will actually bear fruit because maybe on that day, there is no interesting article or article related for your job. And I think what I meant earlier as well was let's say you're a fintech in Singapore and you launched maybe two years ago. You grew your market in Singapore, but now it's time for you to expand. But it's important for you to stay updated on what's going on in other markets as well. So outside of the like outside of Singapore, but also like look into other industry trends, even outside fintechs, let's say. And for people like that, they're actually really, really busy. And the, what I get a feedback from people is that you know they don't have the time to check the news every single day to keep up with things happening in their industry or in their country or even read about like other markets even though they're expanding to them because they're just frankly super busy and they don't have the time to refresh these sites, go through all of these sites. And having the newsletter allows them to just go open their email, which they do every single morning, and then read the news and they don't feel the FOMO of like, okay, maybe I missed out on an important article or maybe I missed out on an article that's about my competitor or about another market that I'm very curious in exploring. Because the truth is, like, with so much news out there, not everything is going to be relevant. And having it in one convenient place allows people to sort of have less friction and waste less time. Added to the fact that we make everything a lot more digestible than every other news site there, which is an added plus for our readers, because no matter what industry you're in, you'll be able to understand what the company is doing. Plus, we also aggregate a lot of the facts and data that we're able to get from more than just one article or one piece. What's
0: your vision for BackSchool? Because I totally agree that your newsletter has, I think, a fresh take on the newsletter. I think it does address a link formal a lot of folks. That being said, you know, there are a lot of newsletters I want to say a lot, but I think there's globally there's a lot of you know, then letters of you know every writer, every community. I think in Southeast Asia, I think the biggest one I feel like would probably be Tech, tech in Asia, right? I think could they have uh, I think like fifty thousand subscribers, and I think also the can is also pretty good in terms of in-depth reporting. So all of these kind of address the formal point, right? And the awkward reality is like. I, as a user, have multiple newsletters and they all go into a RSS feed for me. So I just kind of like scan those four newsletters and I archive everything and I just scan those four things. I'm like, I'm good to go for today. Do you feel like that's, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, how do you see that vision there for BackScoop?
1: So i would say that, with BackScoop is more than just like having the newsletter, right? So I started the newsletter really just to solve my problem, which was like, I can't read every article on every site and check every site to find out all of the news. Plus, we have that added point where the newsletter has, is also curated to have the more relevant news for people instead of just endless amounts of articles that you have to sift through. And beyond that, what's exciting for me is being able to grow BackScoop to something that could serve the ecosystem in a more meaningful way. So we started with the newsletter, which solves the most basic problem, which is what's happening, what's the most interesting news, who fundraised in the past one to two days. But we've actually been able to also grow our audience much beyond that as well. So the news that right now has 7.5K subscribers and everybody's really somebody who is in the setup ecosystem in Southeast Asia and some people in the setup ecosystem outside. But beyond that, we also have a total social following of 20,000 people. And with that, we actually want to bring our engaged audience and lean into that to build more products and services that serve them. Because I feel like as a smaller news outlet, a younger news outlet for now, we can actually have the ability to change and shift with the different needs in the Southeast Asian ecosystem much better than the others, just because you know we don't have all of these other existing products that we have to, let's say, adapt or change or remove. And another thing is that we have a more engaged and direct relationship with our audience. So a lot of the people, especially in the earlier days that I was running BackScoop, I'd gotten on calls with them a lot of people now I still write a lot of emails and messages with a lot of people. And at the end of the day, the newsletter, having it at people's inboxes, people are a lot more receptive and active. Like they like to write in and things like that. And they even offer a lot of ideas and problems for us to solve. And for us, we want to lean into that, into for to build our next products with the whole idea of really how do we serve the Southeast Asian ecosystem as a multimedia outlet. And Sort of create more products and services that continue to serve them and their needs. So after finding out, okay, what happened today and yesterday, the most important news, the most important fundraisers, what else do people need? And we're going to be figuring that out.
0: What do people write into you about? I'm so curious. Any uh, stories or any examples?
1: I think for me, and beyond just like funny or interesting like messages, I feel like it's more of like the meaningful relationships that you're able to build. One of our, my earliest subscribers from Indonesia, she's a good friend now. When my relative went to Indonesia and she heard about it, she sent over a whole box of like things from Indonesia and Indonesian startup goods to me. Another thing would be, I was heading to Malaysia and then I had this other subscriber who I'd really just had a call with maybe a few weeks before my trip. And then before I headed on my flight, we actually reconnected again. And that led me to Actually, going to the restaurant that she recommended to me and a couple other subscribers recommended to me, which was Village Park in Malaysia. So I went there as my like, my first destination of the trip in, in KL. And like lo and behold, while I was eating like the nasi lemak, I looked to my right and saw this really familiar-looking face. And it was the person who actually recommended Village Park to me. And she didn't even plan on going there. It was just like on a whim. And that was the way I met. Accidentally met like one of my subscribers in person in the wild, like not at a startup event or things like that. And then later on, we actually went to a theme park in Malaysia for one day that I had free. I think those are the more interesting and fun stories that I've had added to you know the many people who sort of were writing in about how they enjoy Backscope, and then a couple of months later they have their own startup, and then a couple of months later I write about it as an article. So I think those are the more fun and interesting stories for me.
0: Yeah, and these are all awesome stories. I think obviously, you know, I think people love content and people love community. I think the tricky part for a lot of aspiring creators out there is really about the sustainability or even the profitability of it, right? I think it's one thing to write as a hobby. Heck, even for me, podcasting is a hobby versus, you know, writing as a business, a newsletters as a business, a podcast as a business. So how do you think about that monetization pathway? Because, you know, so many folks ask that question all the time, I'm sure, of, of you as well.
1: Yeah, so for us, we just started monetizing with Backscoop as a newsletter. I felt like one of the things that people really appreciated was that we were free. So, a lot of different platforms that are out there, they have a paywall or they have like limited access unless you create an account. But for us, everything on Backscoop is actually free. I myself, I hate paywalls and I feel like the most basic news, like what happened, what's the most important thing that I need to know, these things are basic and shouldn't be paywall. So, with that in mind, I told myself, okay, Paywalls, premium subscriptions are totally off the table. The next thing I did was like, okay, what, what else can we figure out? So one of the things that I wanted to test out was ads, especially because we had all different people reaching out asking us, oh, can you promote us or can you, can you run an ad and can we target your audience? So I've started exploring that recently and started placing ads on the newsletter itself. And since BackScoop is basically a place where you want to read Southeast Asian tech news, it's concise, it's witty, it's fun and easy to read, plus it has that more personal feel, we took that into the ads as well. So all of the ads that we write in BackScoop are actually co-written by the company. So we make sure it fits with the whole vibe and comes off as like a more, more of a recommendation. So it's like a BackScoop pick or BackScoop sort of recommended company. And we want to always retain the trust of our readers. So that's why we went through that route. Obviously, it's been difficult to sort of create a perfect path to monetization. I can't crack the sales code with my first sale, but we made our first few sales recently. So that's pretty exciting. I can't wait to figure the rest of it out.
0: I mean, what advice do you have for you know, all these aspiring creators, right? I mean, the creator economy? Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for people who want to? build or write or communicate and you know build something in that creative economy.
1: So as a creator, so like I write everything on BackScoop right now. It's actually pretty funny. I would have never have thought that I would become a writer or a journalist or anything like that in any part. But I've become one as part of my role for BackScoop right now. So I think the first thing you have to do is you have to like totally tell yourself, you can't really box yourself in and say like, oh, I'm not good at writing. I'm not going to be able to tell my story well, because that holds so many people back. And I could have told myself the same thing, but it's more of asking yourself, okay, what can I write about that I enjoy writing about? And what can I consistently write about? And then from there, everything sort of writes itself. Because for me, one of the things I always enjoyed was reading news, whether it was Southeast Asian tech or news in general. And I always make my own summaries and things like that. So when I started writing Baxco, I told myself, okay, I know how to summarize things. I know how to make things fun and witty. Let me try actually writing it down. And the things that helped me the most were, one, setting a sort of expectation for myself. So I already knew what to write and what I would be able to consistently write about. The next part was how often do i want to publish so that's the first thing i think creators should always think of when they're starting how often can i consistently publish the second would be sort of creating a certain structure i think one of the biggest hurdles is obviously writer's block or i guess it cuz there are lots of video creators also maybe you could call it just creators block if you're able to set a certain structure it will really take out that writer's block. So for me, it was, okay, with the newsletter, I'm going to have X, Y, Z sections. They're going to be X amount of words long. I'm going to make sure that each of these articles have a fun tone. They let you know what the company does. They let you know how much they raise and all of the relevant information, et cetera. So I think when you're starting, you have to make strict expectations for yourself and that will really help you set the tone and be consistent.
0: What's interesting is that as you be consistent as schedule, it also gets harder, right? Because I think being consistent in terms of being a creator makes sense because you're writing or podcasting and so, so forth. But then, like you said, you, know, you start adding monetizing, you start working with a team, you start all these things. So how does that schedule change? How do you adapt your routine once you get past that? Creation schedule, but how do you layer on these different layers of monetization and growth and retention?
1: I think it really depends on what you want to be, right? You can be a creator and sort of not really put so much focus on the monetization side and all of those sides. Like there are people who purely just enjoy making TikToks, YouTube videos, and then the money just comes as a bonus. I started Backscoop knowing that I would be a business. So the pressure is on for me to. Really discover like monetization, how it's gonna work, what's beneficial for the audience, what's beneficial for the customers, et cetera. So, how that changes is how seriously you wanna take the monetization and how big of a focus you want it to be. Because when I started Backscoop, right, I wasn't doing any monetization. The goal for me was to grow the audience, to continue writing the best content, those two things. That's why. I really just focus on the writing side. I started writing once a week, then after a few months, two times a week, after a few months, three, after a few months, we're now at four times a week. I think the journey for the creator is one, you want to learn how to consistently create content of a certain standard regularly. And that's what I did for the first one year of Scoop how can I write the newsletter and how can I consistently write it for four days? Because obviously in the first time I wrote the newsletter for one edition a week, I was super slow. But now writing for a week, I mean, yeah, for a week, I'm much faster. Like I can spend 45 minutes on one article before it might take me three hours. The journey of the creator at that point, when they're just creating and not monetizing, they're spending almost all their time on engaging with the audience, um, getting into the right people and creating the best content. But when you decide that, okay, I'm more than just a creator. I actually want to make money out of this. And like for me, as a business, I'm monetizing. Then you also have to carve out extra time to doing things like, how can I monetize? What are the effective ways that I can monetize? Ways that my audience will appreciate and accept. And the second is actually figuring that whole part out. Like I have to carve out time to do sales calls, to sort of explore and analyze what's working and what's not. And I also have, for example, targets to hit internally, right? So I think that's the difference between being just a creator, but also, like, sort of being a business at the same time.
0: And you started hinting a little bit at it, right? It's like, what are the easy parts, which is the writing and the schedule, and talk about the hard parts. Everybody looks at the glamour, right? Of being a creator. Wow, Jeremy, you're doing this. You have a podcast. Wow, Amanda, (laughs) you have a newsletter. I mean, it's fake, right? So there's a lot of the the glamour of it. What would you say is the hard parts I think that people don't really understand behind the scenes about why it actually takes to get this out?
1: I mean, it's not glamorous at all. And that's like the truth. I'm telling you here that it's easy for me to write these articles. And I'm saying that's the easiest part of my job, but that doesn't make it easy at all. It's still really hard. It's just comparatively less hard than the other parts. And those parts are hard just because I just started learning how to monetize now. But the writing is also still pretty hard. And I think that's the thing about sort of being a creator or being in sort of any kind of job where you have to be creative and sort of consistently produce an output. The hard parts that people might not see is like one, I haven't been on like a proper vacation except like the two days of the weekend that I was still in KL. And like the past maybe two years that I've been working in like the startup space haven't had a proper vacation and sort of like waving off any opportunities for me to go on vacation because I'll still have to write the newsletter, right? Like I could take a day off and tell people I'm not going to write on that day, but I just feel like that's unfair. (laughs) The second is... You also have to work on people's timelines. Like People are always expecting you to publish on a certain date and a certain time. Like, You could have the worst day possible and you still have to release your podcast or record your podcast or your newsletter. For me, I also have to publish on LinkedIn. Truth be told, I was not really the type to publish like on LinkedIn. When I started BackScoop, I didn't even put it in my LinkedIn until like three, four months later. I didn't tell people about it much externally and on the news i barely mentioned myself but then people started asking me like why don't you write more about yourself on backscoop or why don't you share more of your journey and for me i felt like it was a bit narcissistic to write about myself in the newsletter so i told people okay i'm going to write about it on my linkedin instead then people started asking for more so now here i am writing more because that's what people find value in and enjoy like it's really touching also to see like the kinds of messages and comments that people make from the content that you write, and it's more than just support. There are people who are really just grateful to have seen your content and and said, like, because of your newsletter, I started writing my own newsletter, or because of your newsletter, I decided to do X, y Z, or because of your newsletter, I felt a lot or because of your LinkedIn post, I felt a lot less bad about myself. Somebody actually messaged me saying like. That my LinkedIn post about me having a hard time running back scoop made them feel so much better about themselves because they've been feeling terrible about being a founder who raised money X Y Z but aren't, is not like gaining any traction. So I feel like that's the hard part about being a creator, but it's also I guess the most rewarding part as well. Obviously, the other hard part is like learning how to make money as part of this whole thing because you also have to treat it like as a business, no matter how much you love the job, right? It's still like um, a business. <laughs> yeah,
0: totally get it. I always share with people like having two daughters, one is two years old and one mm-hmm. is uh, five months old. But I think the birth of the second child plus maintaining a podcast tempo was quite challenging. But thankfully I had, kind of like had some experience so I was able to, I think, record in advance and have a buffer of episodes. But even so, it was quite an interesting yes. challenge.
1: Yeah, like even if you create a buffer, right, that's how many times that you had to record before your second child was born. <laughs> like you're adding that workload. The truth is you can't escape the job.
0: <laughs> it's true, it's true. I definitely felt it was like a giant buffer I built because I knew that I needed three months of bufferish. I was actually, when the kid arrive, I was like, I totally timed out. I didn't record any podcasts mm. for like, like almost one to two months, actually. It was kind of interesting to have that time out, but also I was a bit burned out from that hump of uh, buffalo with that done as well. Exactly. And so uh, now I'd love for you to share a time that you personally have been brave.
1: I think for me, a time where I felt like I was most brave is probably like the the leap to do back scoops. So I come from a family where I was always like sort of the achiever child. So I went to school Sometimes I even transferred schools because I felt like it wasn't challenging enough. I would try to do everything. I ran for student council for three years because I was losing for two years and I couldn't stop running until I finally won. I, what else would I do? I also spent all of my time like studying for, let's say, every exam because I told myself like, I have to get like the best grades possible so I could go to the best school. And so when it was time to graduate from high school, my family was all excited, like, where is she going to go for college? Because I'd also applied to some schools outside the Philippines in the US and the UK, and everybody had high hopes because they knew how hard I worked and how sort of type A I was. But then when the pandemic hit, I decided, okay, it doesn't make sense to go to classes online on Zoom, especially if I'm going overseas. So I took a year off, ended up working at a startup, ended up realizing that I love it. So I said, I'm not going to go back to school. was super set on like working at the startup for the second, third, fourth years, and maybe working at other startups and just never going back to school. And the the part where I was brave was really when I decided to take that leap and tell myself, like I'm not going back to school. That makes it a bit different because you had that sort of dream path for yourself, which was I'm going to go to study at the best college possible. I'm going to have this really great career, make a lot of money, do a lot of really impactful stuff. But then being brave, I feel like is sort of being able to let things go that you thought you believed were good for yourself and things that you actually wanted for yourself. So letting go of that whole ideal for myself, which was going to top school, getting a great job as an investment banker, and then letting that go to continue working at that startup and just not go to college altogether. When I made that choice, it also came with a lot more struggles. It was a commitment to consistently be brave. I think the first brave decision was just to not go to to college anymore. But the braver part there was making that decision, knowing that you would have to face a lot of difficulties outside of that. So what people might not know is that like, because I didn't go to high school, I also, I mean, I didn't go to college, I get a lot of negative feedback from people saying like, oh, don't you feel like you wasted your education? (laughs) Or don't you feel like you could be doing something better if you actually went to college? And sometimes you really have to take those comments with stride because it's hard to fight with people. (laughs) It's very hard to fight with people because you know that the path that you're taking is a bit unconventional. Whenever you're taking a sort of unconventional path, you always know that there will be people who won't understand. But you have to continue doing what you enjoy doing, doing what you feel like is right, even if they say those things. And sort of being able to also show those people that, look, that might have been maybe a crazy decision to you, but I want to also show you that it could actually be a really meaningful and actually great decision To make because we were able to see some really exciting things come out of that. Like, I may not have been able to go to a top university or go to university at all and sort of leave that. I've sort of really accepted that probably not going to any college at all. When people tell me that I could be doing better if I went to college, I just tell them, like, well, I've been able to do all of these meaningful things. Like, I've been able to write this newsletter. I've been able to meet all sorts of interesting people and I've been able to grow as a person beyond the usual ways that people may learn to grow. And that's okay. And I feel like that's a really brave thing is being able to be told you're wrong all the time and have a lot of people who don't understand, but try to really continue on that path.
0: Why is it that you think people don't understand the fact that you're skipping university?
1: I thought that people might not talk about it so much after I've been running it for like a year and started getting a bit more traction and now starting to monetize. But I still get that feedback nowadays. I think it's because, maybe because we're in Asia. I think for a lot of people, education is obviously great. I, I have nothing against going to college. Like It was just not the path that I took, given all of the choices that, I mean, all the opportunities in front of me, Right. But I feel like people feel like college is the normal thing. And it's not common, I think, as common in Asia to go against the grain. Added to that, some of the comments I've also heard were like, maybe because I'm a girl. So maybe if you're a girl, people feel like you already have sort of setbacks. Like maybe going to college will help you get a better job and compete against men. But now, Amanda, you're not going to college. So you get even more like setbacks in your life. I think another thing is also sort of like the fact that maybe people don't understand because I've also changed a lot as a person. Like before I told you, like I was super type A, got the best grades that I could, worked really hard and really wanted to go to a really good college overseas. I think people might be surprised because I had that kind of opportunity that was not something everybody could have. Like I was able to get a scholarship overseas and for other people, they might not even get that chance. So maybe some people feel like it wasn't the right thing to do because I was given a rare opportunity and I didn't take it. And since it's sort of the well-trodden path, right? Like people who are able to go to a foreign university or a top university, they get this really great and stable career after. And I think for other people, especially from older generations, they might feel like you've almost had like your life set out for you, this stable job, this great career, and then you, you let that go especially when not all of those people have that opportunity. I feel like those are the kinds of things that people might feel. And that's why some people don't really think as positively of it.
0: What advice do you have for people who are going through that set of criticism? And so the criticism, like you said, is skipping university, dropping out, not being a doctor, (laughs) not being a lawyer. There's a lot of criticism, right? And that may come from parents, may come from family, may come from friends. They come from strangers.
1: Or people you don't know.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Strangers, criticism is always the funniest. Yeah. Wow. It came from nowhere, right? (laughs) So so, do you have any tips or advice on how to survive it or get through it?
1: I think for me, one of the biggest hurdles was myself. I think the one thing that people might also not realize is a challenge. is like when you skip like the whole college part, You also skip that opportunity to slowly grow up for four years and sort of become an independent thinker where you're not really affected as much by your peers or your family as much or even like the world around you. I feel like when you're still younger in school, you're easily affected by what other people think, no matter who they are. So I think the biggest hurdle first was myself, like being able to come to terms that, hey, I've changed and I don't want the things that I used to want so much. Like I don't want that super stable career where I climb the ladder anymore. And the second thing about that I had to work with myself with was, hey, I'm choosing a, an unconventional path. And you have to make peace with that. And you have to tell yourself, that's going to be hard for me. And that's going to be hard for you and the people around you because they're going to have opinions and feelings and they may or may not be affected in other ways, depending on what decision you're making. So I think the most important part is making that peace with yourself. And then after that, it's being able to really stay with your decision and have conviction in it. So what I've been able to do with Backscope, I always try to be a bit more open. These are the milestones that I've had. These are the things that I've been able to do. And for some people that didn't really understand the path that I'm taking, I've seen some of those people Sort of understand after I've made a couple of milestones. I think some people, when they saw I was on CNN sharing back they they were really excited. But I know some of those people were also people who thought I was really crazy for not going to college. So I feel like you have to really just focus on the work and let it take care of you and be able to enjoy those milestones for yourself and also sort of be able to share it with those people as well if there are people like that in your your life who are directly like sort of opposed to what you're doing but at the end of the day it's really a a problem that you have to face on your own internally and i think that would be your biggest demon yourself and being able to make those adjustments because you know yourself the best like one of the things that i actually did was sort of stay off social media a lot because i knew that that would sort of affect me mentally in the sense that I might feel like I'm comparing myself with my peers and like, look, oh, they're having fun in college. They get to go on vacation and I don't. And when you let yourself sort of be affected by your emotions, especially when it gets triggered by things that you can control, that's probably the worst. If you're vulnerable emotionally and you can't control that on your own, then that will allow you to be weak in the sense that when people are against you and people don't really believe in you, that might take you over and might make you give up when, truthfully, you probably wouldn't have given up.
0: Oh, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I really appreciate you doing and going so deeply into this. I'd love to wrap things up by sharing the three big themes I got from this. The first is thank you so much for sharing, I think, the story about why you found the back scoop and the opportunity you saw in the media landscape versus Tech in Asia, E27, Industry Asia, all these other folks for a newsletter that was able to address the fear of missing out, a FOMO for folks, but also provide that clear set of resources for listeners and readers across the region and globally about Southeast Asia. The second is your in-depth discussion about monetization for creators and I think the awkward realities behind it about what needs to be done and the different challenges and choices between piece subscriptions versus advertising, as well as the challenges I think of the creator lifestyle behind the supposed glitz and glamour of being a creator. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about your choice to skip university and the criticism that was associated with it. That was an interesting conversation that in order for you to take this opportunity to found Bex group you chose to skip university. And, you know, you got feedback from friends and family and strangers who would later praise you for going on CNN, but that you had to be thoughtful about their early criticism or scepticism about your choice. I really appreciate you giving some of that advice to folks about facing or bypassing the criticism that they may face. So uh, thank you so much, Amanda, for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jeremy.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyowell.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.